Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. A historic day in America. On Wednesday, December 18th, 2019, the U.S. House of Representatives voted for only the third time in history to impeach the sitting president of the United States. Here's how the day unfolded. The House will be in order. At 9 a.m., the House gaveled into session, and very soon thereafter, the Republicans tried to end the impeachment debate before it even began. This vote, the yeas are 188, the nays are 226. The motion is not adopted. That motion failed. Shortly after, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy made a second GOP motion, this time to condemn House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff and Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler for their handling of the impeachment process. The clerk will report the resolution. Whereas Chairman Schiff and Chairman Nadler willfully and intentionally violated the rules of the House of Representatives by abusing and exceeding their powers as chairman of committees. Whereas on September 9th... That motion also failed. Though both of those motions together did successfully delay the day's proceedings. Next came an hour of debate over the rules for the debate on the articles of impeachment. Yes, that's a floor debate over the rules of another floor debate. I, Ms. Madam Speaker, I ask for unanimous consent to amend H.R. 767 to provide for 12 hours of debate equally divided by the majority and the minority. And eventually, the House set a rule that six hours of debate would come before the final votes on articles of impeachment later that night. To kick off those six hours, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi gave a speech asserting that, quote, Trump gave us no choice but to impeach him. What we are discussing today is the established fact that the president violated the Constitution. It is a matter of fact that the president is an ongoing threat to our national security and the integrity of our elections, the basis of our democracy. Republicans countered Pelosi's assertions by calling impeachment a partisan effort. Today is going to be a lot of things. What it is not is fair. By suggesting that impeachment is based in a dislike of the president. This day is about one thing and one thing only. They hate this president. And by saying that evidence from the inquiry came up short. But we have not heard evidence beyond a reasonable doubt of bribery or extortion. After hours of debate, Chairman Schiff, who led much of the House inquiry, finally closed with impassioned remarks. If you ignore it, if you say the president may refuse to comply, may refuse lawful process, may coerce an ally, may cheat in an election because he's the president of our party, you do not uphold our Constitution. You do not uphold your oath of office. Well, I will tell you this. I will uphold mine. I will vote to impeach Donald Trump. I yield back. Ultimately, though, the debate did little to change the predicted outcome of the final votes on articles of impeachment. Just after 8 p.m., the House vote began on the first article of impeachment leveled against Trump. 
abuse of power. Democrats accused the president of using the authority of his office to coerce a foreign leader to investigate a domestic political rival. On this vote, the yeas are 230, the nays are 197, present is one. Article one is adopted. The passage of that vote meant Trump became the third U.S. president in our nation's history to be impeached. The second article of impeachment against Trump, obstruction of Congress, gained enough votes to pass the House shortly after. On this vote, the yeas are 229, the nays are 198, present is one, Article 2 is adopted. As expected, the final vote was 230 in favor, 197 opposed on the first article, and 229 in favor and 198 opposed on the second article. The votes fell largely, though not completely, along party lines. One Democrat, Jared Golden of Maine, voted in favor of the first article of impeachment, but not the second. Two Democrats from districts that Trump won in 2016, that's Jeff Vandrew of New Jersey and Colin Peterson of Minnesota, voted against both articles of impeachment. Justin Amash of Michigan, a former Republican and now an independent, voted in favor of both articles. Democratic presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii voted present, which is neither for nor against, on both articles. And meanwhile, while the House voted to impeach him, Trump was 600 miles away, rallying supporters in Battle Creek, Michigan. The do-nothing Democrats, and they are do-nothing. All they want to do is focus on this. What they could be doing are declaring... Their deep hatred and disdain for the American voter. This lawless partisan impeachment is a political suicide march for the Democrat Party. Have you seen my polls in the last four weeks? Adoption of the articles of impeachment in the House sets the stage for a trial in the Republican-controlled Senate next month. Though immediately following the vote, Pelosi didn't quite commit to a timeline for delivering the articles to the Senate. After a trial there in the Senate, a two-thirds vote will be required to remove the president from office. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. I wanted to really understand the significance of this moment. How does Trump's impeachment compare to those in history? How might impeachment affect Trump's ability to do his job? And for the first time in history, we're likely to see an impeached president run for re-election. What does that mean for our electoral process? For these answers, I turned to one of the greats in political reporting, our chief political correspondent, Dan Balls. He's covered the three impeachment processes in modern history. I started by asking him, based on his decades of reporting, is the hyperpolarized nature of this political moment in time actually as unprecedented as it can feel, or perhaps just pretty close to what we always see in Washington? The reality is that we are at a more partisan and hyperpolarized period than we've been in our history. But looking back on the Clinton impeachment proceeding and much of what was written at the time 
a lot of it focused on the degree to which hyperpartisanship was shaping what was happening in 1998. And so I think we're, we have been on a continuum, and you can mark the beginning in a variety of places, and people do. But I think that under this president, and, and he's, you know, he inherited a lot of this, but under this president, those divisions have become deeper. And I think you see that in the, in the nature of the polling and in the nature of the arguments that are going back and forth. To what extent, then, should we understand Trump's impeachment as an outgrowth of that hyperpolarization? I think in this case, Speaker Pelosi was probably right that the actions of the president in this case forced upon House Democrats, since they're in control, a choice about what they do when they regard something as in violation of the Constitution or an abuse of presidential power. This is certainly not something that Speaker Pelosi went after eagerly. She had had been reluctant throughout the year to move to impeachment. She was all for investigations and that sort of thing, but recognized that a partisan impeachment proceeding is a risky step. It's risky politically, obviously, and there's risk on both sides on that, but it's also risky for the fabric of the country. And I think she recognized that, but I think that she and other Democrats, when they saw what had gone on with regard to the pressure on Ukrainian leaders to mount an investigation or at least announce an investigation of former Vice President Biden and his son Hunter, that that they were left with this difficult decision. Do they ignore that and therefore allow a president to essentially do those kinds of things, to invite foreign interference in an American election? Or do they respond and, in a sense, take the consequences one way or the other? And so there was no good path for them at that point. And I think she took the path that she felt was a constitutional obligation as opposed to a political nicety. And yet it seems like there isn't even agreement among elected leaders about what that constitutional obligation is. I know politicians have always engaged in spin to some extent, but I struggle to contextualize whether this current moment with its prominence of distorting facts for political gain is unique to this moment in history. Well, I think that's different. I mean, I think that's a that's a function of the Trump era. I mean, the president has has trafficked in misstatements, falsehoods, whatever you want to call them for a long time. And the evidence that has been laid out, Republicans have been loath to buy into any aspect of that, or very few of them have. They have tried to dismiss it and essentially look for an alternative set of facts to go with it. And so I think that is different. In the case of the Clinton impeachment, there was an agreement about what had happened. I mean, he had an affair with a White House intern, and he had lied about it. Those facts were not in dispute and both sides recognized that. The question was, did it rise to the level of an impeachable offense? Do you throw a president out of office for a private affair and then lying to cover it up, perhaps out of embarrassment or whatever reason? In this case, there is no agreement on the facts, even though the testimony that was laid out before the House Intelligence Committee was quite strong by a variety of people who had different angles at it and the Republicans have chosen to say, well, we don't think anything improper here happened, as opposed to saying, well, this was not right, but it isn't impeachable, or maybe in other circumstances, it would be impeachable, but we're close to an election, and therefore, let the public decide. Right. I want to drill into that a little bit further. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. 
Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. As far as the behavior of members of Congress who are actually involved in this impeachment process, we've seen Republicans flat out deny any wrongdoing by the president whatsoever. We've seen Democrats call for Trump's impeachment long before the Ukraine call emerged. Do the actions of representatives at this moment in history seem to depart significantly from approaches we've seen in the past by congressmen and women? during past impeachments or just sort of generally speaking? Well, I mean, the, the the truth is we don't have that many examples. Right. Right. You can go back to the Andrew Johnson impeachment in 1868, and that was partisan in many ways and, and, and one that for a long time in history was judged as improper, that it was an abuse of congressional power to try to uh, remove a president over some of the disagreements they have. There's been some new history written that suggests that there were quite valid reasons that it had everything to do with what kind of a country we were going to be after the Civil War and how you brought the country back together and under what terms Southern folks who had been, you know, pushing for the war should be brought in back into power. And what with the Nixon impeachment, there was such a body of evidence that existed by the time the House Judiciary Committee began to meet to consider impeachment. I mean, we'd had court cases. We'd had people go to jail. We'd had the Senate Watergate Committee hearings. There was a huge amount of evidence as to the wrongdoing by the president and those around him. This one is, you know, in a sense, closer to what we saw in the Clinton case because that was done almost entirely on partisan lines and party lines in the House and Senate. And that's the same that we're going through in this one, that we've been watching it play out in, in a partisan way. But I go back to what I said earlier. I think that, that everything is more supercharged right now in the Trump era, just because people's feelings about this president are so locked in and have been for a long time. I mean, we know his approval rating trades within a very narrow range. It, it doesn't go up very far. It doesn't go down very far. That's unusual for presidents. Other presidents have, have seen ups and downs in their approval ratings. This president has not. And I think that that's indicative of the degree to which we live in a time in which almost everything goes through the lens of do people like President Trump or do they not like President Trump? Does that existing framework somehow make impeachment at this moment less meaningful? Well, I don't know. It, it certainly has not captured the attention of people in the way that certainly the Clinton impeachment did. And I don't know of any polling on the Watergate, but the Watergate transfixed Washington and the country for the better part of two years. In, in this case, perhaps because the same arguments are being made over and over again, they just move from one, you know, one committee to another committee to the House floor and eventually to the Senate, that people say, well, I've, I've heard all this. So in, in, in that sense, there's something different about this. And it you know, it's it's is this a circus or is this, you know, weighty constitutional moment? And in a sense, it's a little bit of both. And I think that the public is weary of all of the chaos that has surrounded this president. And I mean, I, I hear from people and talk to people who just volunteer, you know, I, I'm not watching the news or I can't watch the news anymore. I'm just worn out. And I think this is, what you know, kind of one more log on that fire that's been raging for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, it feels almost preordained, right? Through many points in this process, we feel like we've known what the next step is going to be and what's going to happen. Well, and, and there's almost nothing going on around it that 
detracts from that. I mean, there there was some progress made last week on trade matters. There had been some you know progress made on some legislative matters. But if you look back to the Clinton period in the fall of 1998, there were all kinds of things that were stirring that kept things a little bit in suspense. I mean, the the House Republicans you know, did not do well in the 1998 midterm elections. That was a shock to them. It created some sense of, well, perhaps they won't go through with this because they will think that it's really going to cost them politically. They ended up deciding to go through with it. A few days before the vote in the House, the president launched airstrikes against Iraq. And so you had this this moment in which some people were claiming it was a wag the dog moment. And Newt Gingrich, who was at that point the outgoing speaker, he had stepped down after the, the problems in the midterm elections. He went to the floor and basically said, as the, as the House was preparing to vote on impeachment, he went to the floor and said, look, America has to lead the world and the president is our leader. And he was talking about Iraq and we need to send a signal to the rest of the world. So you had that. You just had a number of things that, that made that moment feel different than this moment. This moment just feels like it has been marching in the, a straight line for the past couple of months. Well, and another piece of the story that's largely been also moving in a straight line is American sentiment about the impeachment process. The Washington Post and ABC released a new poll this week on impeachment that finds results largely along party lines and specifically shows 49 percent of Americans say Trump should be impeached and removed from office and 46 percent say that he should not. Those results are much the same as the numbers we saw in late October when we asked that same question. But one question in our poll this time didn't actually reflect a huge partisan divide. And that question was whether Trump should allow his top aides to testify in the Senate trial. What results did we see on that question? Well, on that question, it was seven in 10 Americans said that he should release those people to testify in the Senate. And there were uh, sizable majorities of all political stripes, Republicans, Democrats, and independents. We'll see whether that has any influence on the way the Senate conducts the trial. I suspect it probably will not. But nonetheless, that was a that was a bit of a surprising result. Why do you imagine we saw that result? I think people say the more information, the better. And I think that the, the idea of withholding testimony or witnesses or documents probably does offend a lot of people. And they think the more I can learn about this, the better able I'll be able to judge whether this was worthy or not. Given then what we know from polling, will the impeachment and Senate trial process that's likely to end in the early months of 2020 still be on voters' minds when they hit the voting booth in November? That's a hard question. If you ask people about it, they will basically say no. That, Or, or if you ask them the most important issues, almost every poll will show health care, jobs, economy, the traditional things that are on people's minds before an election. But this is one more piece that will go into the thinking of both sides. I have I have very little doubt that President Trump, assuming he is acquitted in the Senate, will use this to say this is, you know, this is what the Democrats always want to do. Do not let them drive me from office in this election. You you've seen what they have tried to do day by day by day. Let's show them what we really are about and what we stand for and that there is great support for me. I think for some Democrats who very much want to see Trump limited to a single term in the Oval Office, will have this in the back of their mind, if not the forefront of their mind, that this did not go through and that the only option left to them will be to turn out and vote. So the question is, which side is more motivated by those sentiments come November? But I, I have to believe that in either in the forefront or in the back of the brains of a lot of voters, it's going to be there. Yeah. And I know you touched on this earlier, but 
and it's, of course, impossible to predict anything, but what have we learned from the Nixon and Clinton impeachment processes about the political consequences of impeachment in the following elections? It's almost impossible to predict. And those who predict dire consequences for one side or the other often find the opposite happening. If you look at the Nixon impeachment, the 1994 midterms, which happened just a couple of months after he resigned, were a bath for the for the Republicans of a huge class of what became known as Watergate babies. And in 1976, then President Ford, who had ascended to the presidency after Nixon resigned, was defeated by Jimmy Carter. So in a sense, you would say that the president who faced impeachment, his party bore the brunt of it politically. If you look at the Clinton impeachment, what you see is that the Republicans suffered before the impeachment vote took place. But in 2000, in the presidential election, they won the presidency. George W. Bush defeated Vice President Gore, and they held their majority in the House. So in the short term, there was some turmoil within the Republican Party. Over the course of the next two years, it did not have that much effect. And I think that Democrats who were in districts that had been carried by Republicans fared reasonably well in 2000. But did Clinton's impeachment affect his ability to do his job, right? He was acquitted in the Senate, but did the fact of having been impeached have substantial consequences for his effectiveness during the remainder of his term? I don't think so, and I think for a couple of reasons. One was his approval ratings were quite strong. I mean, his approval ratings were in the neighborhood of 60 percent, which is quite different than than President Trump at this point, who's in the 40 to 45 percent range. The second is that Clinton and the Republicans saw self-interest in working together on some things. And so they proceeded to try to do that. And I mean, there's a, I think this is true that literally the day after the impeachment, President Clinton was on the phone with Senate Republican leaders and Republicans in the, in the Congress saying, you know, we got to get to work on some things. So it was like they were able to compartmentalize and move on. That, that however, should not be mistaken for the fact that those partisan divisions were still very strong and existed. The one major difference in this impeachment proceeding from from every other one is that you will have a president who goes through this process who is able to run for re-election at the end of it. Bill Clinton had finished his second, was finishing his second term. Nixon resigned and, and Andrew Johnson tried to get the nomination of his party but failed. And so you'll have no other episode like this one that we're about to go through. Might that bring new tests to our electoral system in some way? Well, our electoral system is under so much stress right now (laughs) that I'm not sure that this will add greatly to it. But I think that even more than in many elections, the re-election campaign for President Trump, the 2020 presidential election, will be more focused on the question of should he stay or should he not, and that it will be even more a referendum on him. He's got a story to tell about things he's done and accomplishments he's made, and the Democrats have a story that they will tell about the conduct of this presidency and why four more years, as former Vice President Biden says on the campaign trail, could indelibly change the country. That's the argument that we're going to have, and it all it all focuses entirely on President Trump. And Dan, this is a, a lofty question for you, but w- what does the next chapter of American politics look like? Has something fundamentally changed now that the second president has been impeached by the House in the House by the opposing party in 20 some odd years? I don't think we know. I think all we all we do know is that there isn't likely to be a serious kind of abatement of the state that we're in. Perhaps if you get the election of a Democratic president, that 
person could begin to try to calm things down. But you have to think that if Trump is denied a second term, his supporters are going to be very, very upset, very angry, and they're not going to willingly say, well, okay, let's put, you know, put all this behind us and we need to work with the new president. I, I think we're just in a period of such partisanship that it's going to be difficult for whoever is the next president, whether it's President Trump in a second term or a Democrat in a first term, to be able to, in a significant way, change the system. I mean, if Trump is not there, that will make some difference. But I think that the Republican Party in that case will be going through some internal battles and there will be there will be a desire on the part of the Republican Party and the Trump coalition per se to make life difficult for the new Democratic president. All right, Dan, my final question to you, because this is can he do that? And we've been asking that for about two and a half years. Has this particular impeachment process changed the weight of the power of the presidency? Is it left weaker or stronger than before this impeachment process began? We have seen for decades, the increasing shift of power from the legislative branch to the to the executive branch. And I think that that is certainly the case with this president. This president sees his powers as, as grand and unlimited, as he's said, Article 2 of the Constitution lets him do anything he wants. It's not exactly the right reading of the Article 2 of the Constitution and a Constitution that, that is built very much on checks and balances. But this president has an expansive view of his powers and in this next phase, and particularly if he were to get a second term, you would have to believe that he would see those powers as even more unlimited and try to use them. Then the question is, to what extent would Congress try to check that or be able to check that? Might all of this embolden future presidents to act in more of a unilateral way? All presidents want to act in a relatively <laughs> unilateral way. And I mean, we, we saw under President Obama a greater use of executive action to do things that he was not able to do with congressional approval. You've seen the same thing with President Trump. I think presidents get frustrated when they have to go through a legislative process, particularly one that tends to be as gridlocked as we've seen for you know these last number of years. And as a result of that, they're eager to try to do whatever they can within the powers that they have, even if those can be undone by the next president. So I would expect that whoever is the next president, you will see that battle continue. But I think with President Trump, you see it to a greater degree than you might with some other presidents. All right, Dan Balls, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you want to get more news about impeachment, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Post. All of our audio updates on impeachment in one place, including the latest from Can He Do That? Post Reports and The Daily 202's Big Idea. Updated whenever news happens. Subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the beguiling Carol Alderman, with production help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rutel Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.